0: But
1: may I ask, what is the password for the house? Shhh, it's the Film Flamers.
0: Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Flamers. Bringing you the first of two films this month featuring Nicole Kidman.
1: That's right. Although we also have, you know, covered some Kubrick in the past with The Shining. That's right. And like other, some other Kubrick films, this also features a hedge maze.
0: <laughs> of course, this hedge maze is made of bush. <laughs> Full bush. God, I'm so glad you were holding onto that gem for this recording. <laughs> yeah, so we are here talking about Eyes Wide Shut. Which is a
1: 1999 erotic mystery psychological drama film directed, produced, and co-written by Stanley Kubrick, based on the 1926 novella, *Traumnovelle*, which actually means dream story in, in German, by Arthur Schnitzler. Wow, that's a really German name. <laughs> yes, yes it is. The film stars Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, and Sidney Pollack, and focuses on the sexually charged adventures of a New York City doctor who is shocked when his wife tells him she has contemplated an affair a year earlier. He embarks on a night-long escapade, during which he infiltrates a masked orgy of a secret society.
0: Kubrick obtained the rights to the story in the 60s, thinking it would be the perfect text for a film about sexual relations. He revived his ideas in the 90s, with principal shooting lasting more than 400 days. However, Kubrick died 6 days after showing his final cut to Warner Brothers. Trying to secure an R rating, the studio digitally altered several sexually explicit scenes in post-production. <laughs>
1: okay, listeners, what's the password? Fidelio. This is eyes wide shut.
0: Look, women don't they basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can. But for women, women, it is just about security and commitment and uh, whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice. But yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight. You've been trying to pick a fight with me. And now you're trying to make me jealous. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. And I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. <laughs> Do you think that's funny? <laughs>
1: need a cloak with a hood and a mask. Okay, I think we'll find something for you. I suppose you'd like the password. If you'd like, sir. Fidelio. Thanks.
0: I don't think you realize the danger you're in
1: there. You've been way out of your
0: depth. You've got to get away before it's too late. Dr. Bill Harford, played by Tom Cruise, and his wife Alice, played by Nicole Kidman, live in New York City with their daughter Helena. They attend a Christmas party hosted by wealthy patient Victor Ziegler, played by Sidney Pollack, where Bill is reunited with Nick Nightingale, an old medical school classmate who dropped out and now plays the piano professionally. An older Hungarian guest attempts to seduce Alice, and two young models attempt to seduce Bill. He is interrupted by his host, who had been having sex with Mandy, played by Julian Davis, a young woman who has overdosed on a speedball. Mandy recovers with Bill's aid. The following evening, while smoking the devil's lettuce, Alice and Bill discuss their episodes of unfulfilled temptation. Bill tells Alice he's not jealous of other men's attraction to her because he deems women naturally inclined to fidelity. Alice disagrees and discloses that during their vacation on Cape Cod a year earlier, she encountered a naval officer and fantasized about him enough that she considered leaving Bill and their daughter. Bill is disturbed by Alice's revelation before being called to the house of a patient who had just died. The patient's distraught daughter, Marion, unsuccessfully tries to seduce Bill. Upon leaving, he engages with a prostitute named Domino. Alice phones when they start kissing, prompting Bill to have a change of heart. He pays Domino for the sexless encounter and meets Nick at a jazz club. Nick describes an engagement where he must play the piano blindfolded in events featuring beautiful women. Invitees require a costume, a mask, and a password. After pressuring Nick for the password, Bill goes to a costume shop and offers the owner, Milich, a generous amount of money to rent a costume. Inside the shop, Milich is outraged when he catches his young daughter, played by Lily Sobieski, with two men. Bill takes a taxi to the country mansion mentioned by Nick. He gives the password and discovers a sexual ritual is taking place. One of the masked women warns him that he's in terrible danger and that he should leave immediately. Before he can act on that advice, Bill is ushered to a crowded room and unmasked by the Master of Ceremonies. The woman who had tried to warn Bill intervenes and insists on redeeming him at an undisclosed personal cost. Bill is let off with a warning not to tell anyone about what just happened. Bill arrives home, guilty and confused. He finds Alice laughing in her sleep and awakens her. She tearfully explains a dream in which she was having sex with a naval officer and many other men, and laughing at the idea of Bill witnessing the scene. The next morning, Bill goes to Nick's hotel. The desk clerk explains that a bruised and frightened Nick checked out hours earlier, escorted by two dangerous looking men. Bill returns the costume, but seems to have misplaced the mask and learns that Milich has sold his teenage daughter into sex slavery, though she seems extremely happy about it. That afternoon, plagued by thoughts of his wife sleeping with a naval officer, Bill leaves his practice early to return to the site of the orgy. As he stands at the front gate, a man comes down to greet him and hands him an envelope addressed to him by name. Inside is an anonymous letter issuing him a final warning to stay away. Overstressed and undersexed, Bill calls Marion, but when her fiancé answers, he hangs up. Bill heads to Domino's apartment, apparently having decided to consummate his affair. However, he is greeted by a woman who claims that she is Domino's roommate, Sally. There's obvious sexual attention between Bill and Sally, but then she reveals that Domino has received, that morning, the results of a test that indicated she was HIV positive. Leaving the apartment, Bill notices he's being followed by a mysterious figure. He sees news about a beauty queen's death from an overdose, goes to the morgue, and identifies her as Mandy. He is then summoned by Ziegler, who reveals he was a guest in the orgy and identifies Bill through his connection with Nick. Ziegler claims that the secret society's warnings are only intended to scare Bill from speaking about the orgy. However, he implies that the society is capable of acting on its threats. Bill asks about Nick's disappearance and Mandy's death, correctly identifying her as the masked orgy participant who sacrificed herself for him. Ziegler insists that Nick is safely back at home in Seattle, and the punishment was a part of the same charade of intimidation and had nothing to do with Mandy's death. He also says that Mandy was an addict, who had died from another accidental drug overdose. Bill does not know whether Ziegler is telling the truth about Nick's whereabouts or Mandy's death. Returning home, Bill finds his lost mask on the pillow next to his sleeping wife. Assuming she found it and placed it there to confront him, he breaks down in tears and tells Alice the whole truth of the past two days. The next morning, they go Christmas shopping with their daughter. Bill apologizes to Alice, and Alice muses that they should be grateful that their marriage and mutual love has survived their adventures. She suggests that there is something they need to do as soon as possible. When Bill asks what, she simply responds, fuck. The end? (laughs) God, I hope so. The climax? (laughs) Finally a climax in this movie. Now a climax?
1: (laughs) We had so many opportunities, all movie.
0: (laughs) Now a climax? Fucking love it. Yeah, so that pretty much is that movie, right? I mean... In a nutshell. Somewhat, like, sexual. I don't there's, like, people wanting to have sex but not having sex this entire movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like my life. Leading up to
1: its release, Warner Brothers heavily promoted Eyes Wide Shut while staying true to the director's originally planned secrecy campaign. It was originally released in the U.S. on July 16, 1999, and it grossed $21 million open opening weekend, securing the number one spot at the box office and far surpassing the expectations of the studio. The film would go on to earn more than $162 million worldwide against a budget of $65 million. Making it the most successful movie of Kubrick's career. Mm-hmm. Sixty-five million dollars to make this fucking movie.
0: <laughs> I don't Any know how. Yeah. I mean,
1: it. Well, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. I mean, we've already said it took four hundred days to film this thing. I guess that's over could... a year. That's fifteen months.
0: I kind of do know how to because I, I know some of some of the production stuff about this movie. So yeah. Yeah. Sixty-five million. Thinking about some things seems a little cheap, actually. So marketed as an erotic thriller. Writing on TV Guide, Maitland McDonough writes, No one familiar with the cold precision of Kubrick's work would be surprised that this isn't the steamy erotic thriller a synopsis or the ads might suggest.
1: Yeah, I I think I remember it really being kind of done as like a like a more erotic romantic thriller or mm-hmm. something like that not even thriller I feel like it was mostly like the poster of it and everything instead of like a mask it was just like Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and I feel like it was marketed in kind of a way that would try and draw in as much of, uh, of an audience as possible um, versus just like the people that know Kubrick's work you know and uh, have
0: expectations of what this actually is or was. I mean, I saw this movie in the theater, you know, back in 1999, that summer. I just graduated high school, you know, and it seemed like an erotic thriller to me. Like, all the the trailers I had seen for it, it really seemed like something that was sort of, like, up my alley, right? <clears throat> a mystery of some sort. Okay. So, I mean, I think the marketing worked in that way. And I was familiar with Kubrick's work. And I, he makes a variety of movies, you know what I mean? And a variety of genre. And so it didn't seem outlandish to me that he would make an erotic thriller if i feel like that's something that he maybe had wanted to tackle in his career so
1: i remember the opposite like of course i didn't see any trailers uh i was actually living in germany at the time Mm -hmm. and so i remember just seeing kind of the posters and some of the talk in the media around it but i do remember thinking okay kubrick uh this is going to be very interesting and and different right Than, than most people are thinking
0: and, and I really I mean, I thought the same, you know, I, th- I thought I mean, like we've seen all these erotic thrillers, especially through the 90s. Right. And we've talked about several of them on the show and on Patreon. And so I, you know, thinking Kubrick is doing this one, it's going to be kind of fucked up in some sort of way, you know. And so I know my friends and I were like, it's Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. It's an erotic thriller in my friend group. it was pretty much me who was like a Kubrick fan. And so, like, we went to go see it. And, I mean, I don't know that we were disappointed, but, I mean, some of us liked it a lot more than others. I know that. It's hard to prep for that movie if you haven't seen it. You know what I mean? And That's incredibly true.
1: Yeah. So, Eyes Wide Shut holds a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score, almost exactly that, at 74%. -hmm. The site's consensus reads, Kubrick's intense study of the human psyche yields an impressive cinematic work. Metacritic assigned the film a grade of 68, indicating generally favorable reviews. Over 50 critics have listed it as one of the best films of 1999.
0: Mm. Nathan Rabin of the A.V. Club highly praised the film, arguing that the film's primal, almost religious intensity and power is primarily derived from its multifaceted realization that disobeying the dictates of society and your own conscience can be both terrifying and exhilarating. The film's depiction of sexual depravity and immorality could easily venture into the realm of camp in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, but Kubrick depicts primal evil in a way that somehow makes it seem both new and and deeply terrifying.
1: Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars, writing, Kubrick's great achievement in the film is to find and hold an odd, unsettling, sometimes erotic tone for the Doctor's strange encounters. He praised the dreamlike atmosphere of the separate scenes and called the choice of Christmas-themed lighting garish, like an urban sideshow. <laughs> God bless you, Roger Ebert.
0: Other critics were far less kind to eyes wide shut. Writing for the Washington Post, Stephen Hunter called it the dullest orgy I've seen. Kubrick is annoyingly offhand while at the same time grindingly pedantic plot points are made over and over again things are explained till the dawn threatens to break in the east and the movie stumbles along at a glacial pace Paul Tatara at CNN describes the film as a slow motion morality tale full of hot female bodies and thoroughly uneventful mystery oh my god I agree
1: with basically everything that we've read here what in the in this in this whole half? section? Yeah, I, I agree with I can see and agree with most of everything from all of these critics from both sides. And I can I can too. I remember and, saying out loud while watching the movie, "This is happening in slow
0: motion." Yeah, you the did. slowest
1: motion several times.
0: And I, I agree both with like the the good and the bad reviews. I, I can see the the faults in this movie, and I'm sure that we will get into the things that we like and dislike about it for sure. Yeah. As far as accolades, it did get nominated for best original score at the Golden Globes, but did not win. At the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, it was nominated for a favorite actor, Tom Cruise, favorite supporting actor, Sidney Pollack, but one favorite actress, Nicole Kidman. Interesting. Mm. I was
1: I'm kind of surprised that it you know, a Kubrick film wasn't up for more, just from by default, you know. Especially since it was considered and known to be his probable last film. I was quite shocked at those Academy Awards myself. And certainly by the time the Academy Awards rolled
0: around, they knew it was his last film. Exactly. So like the complete dearth of any nomination for this movie at the Academy Awards was shocking to me at the time. Interesting.
1: For the introduction to Michael Cement's Kubrick, the definitive edition, Martin Scorsese wrote, When Eyes Wide Shut came out a few months after Stanley Kubrick's death in 1999, it was severely misunderstood, which came as no surprise. If you go back and look at the contemporary reactions to any Kubrick picture, except the earliest ones, you'll see that... All of his films were initially misunderstood, and then, after five or ten years, come the realization that 2001, or Barry Lyndon, or The Shining was like nothing else before or since. In 2012, Slant Magazine ranked the film as the second greatest of the 1990s. The British Film Institute ranked the film at number 19 on its list of 90 great films of the 90s. The BBC listed it at number 61 in its list of the 100 greatest American films of all time. That... Is
0: pretty high praise, that last one. Yeah, that's... I I mean, of all time. Of course, I, that's BBC saying which American films. I know. You know. <laughs> that's
1: not exactly the AFI, you know what I mean? Exactly.
0: All right, well, let's get into this movie, shall we? Starting with
1: our cast, which is, I don't want to say stacked, but pretty stacked. It's pretty stacked. Yeah, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, obviously, uh, Kubrick wanted to cast an actual real-life couple mm-hmm. to begin with. Okay. And so several couples, which we'll get into later, were actually... Oh. Uh, discussed and even talk to. And we have uh, Sidney Pollack as a, the pivotal kind of bridge between realities for The Doctor, played by Tom Cruise. But Sidney Pollack, of course, is a director in a, very much his own right, right. Uh, directing things like Out of Africa.
0: Um, uh, let's talk about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman for just a minute. So, I mean, at the time, they were like Hollywood's power couple. Oh, yeah. Right? And they had already done films together before. At this, least is before this is before Brangelina. This is before you know all of it a lot of it yeah yeah and i mean so after like days of thunder and the other one that they did together i can't even remember the title of it now but i mean so like for for us far and away far and away thank you jesus yes i wanted to say cold mountain but that's another nicole kidman (laughs) movie and it's not the same (laughs) um I would say that Cruz and Kidman were like a big drawing power for at least my friends and I to go see this in the theater. Right. We knew it was a sexy sex thriller yeah. and Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. We were just like super interested to see how they would do in this movie. And I think that, I mean, I myself was kind of shocked at the sort of the level of acting by them for most, mostly Nicole Kidman. Yeah. I think that Nicole Kidman in this movie is almost perfect.
1: Yeah. Tom Cruise, what he's mostly doing is walking in and out of rooms.
0: Right. He's reacting to things that are like happening in the movie. Like he's horny and he's witnessing a whole bunch of sexual things and he's going on about his night and day. You know what I mean? Nicole Kidman, I think does a lot of the heavy acting lifting in this movie to great effect. Yeah, sure. Uh, like there are just like she's she's on screen, not even nearly as close or as long as Tom Cruise is, but she's super effective. And they give her these like almost monologues to do, and she does things in this really like deadpan, like I'm just telling you what's in my brain kind of way. And it's just an amazing experience to watch her in this movie. To me, I, I probably this would be my second favorite Nicole Kidman performance of all time out of her entire career. What's your first Moulin Rouge? I would assume the first for her is The Others. No, sorry, not The Others. Um, The Hours. She's also really good in The Hours, which she won the Oscar for eventually. But I think she probably should have won her first Oscar for Moulin Rouge, in my opinion. Okay. Or she should have won her first Oscar for this movie. Didn't she get a Golden Globe? For Moulin Rouge? yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there was a couple anywhere near close to them as far as like power couple it wasn't really i think it was mostly devoid of those types of couples back in the, the late 90s i mean you you have you know things that were like brad and jen is not the same thing you know back no. then tv actresses were not at the level they are today as far as like public viewing as, as far as tvs being important as, as movies now it's a lot more equal standing which is i think a great thing um maybe back then what happened with entrapments with <laughs> michael douglas and <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that Will and Grace joke, by the way. Sydney Pollock plays Will's dad in Will and Grace. That's true. And uh they're watching TV or whatever, and they're like, they're watching this basketball game, they're like, who's that grandfather with her captain's <laughs> Zinn? Who's that old man with a little girl?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Michael Douglas and Catherine Jones. I just wonder, that's I bad. mean, like, when when you're approached by kubrick to do something like this i mean obviously people would jump to work with him i, I mean and they did maybe. you know what they actually had to sign open contracts
1: um because they knew that he would go over budget uh-huh. and over you know length of shooting and they were contracted essentially for as long as it needed right which is kind of unheard of and so like both like practical magic and whatever else uh tom cruise was working on had to be pushed back because of that
0: And I I just wonder what they thought it would do for their careers You know what I mean I don't feel like Tom Cruise Did anything sort of risky In this movie As far as his acting goes You know Um, No risky business here Yeah (laughs) exactly i mean there's i mean he's barely even in his fucking underwear or anything like that but nicole kidman does some risky things in this movie
1: yeah some things about this movie as far as what they show and i don't know what they covered up but i I really do feel like it's like male gaze the movie
0: yeah i mean you're exactly right it is i've never seen the uncut version so i don't i don't know what, what else is in there but we've talked about that couple for long enough probably i'm sure we'll mention them again somewhere in this episode oh yeah sure
1: um and let's see, uh, rounding out, we've got some people that I don't know the names of. They're not like household names. Uh, Todd Field is Nick Nightingale. Marie Richardson is Marion uh, Son. I, I recognize a bunch of these people, but I, I guess they're, you know, just in and out of, of movies and TV and, and things like that. Julian Davis is Amanda or Mandy. Um, <clears throat> Vanessa Shaw is Domino. Rod I I can't say his last name. Yeah as Mr. Milich, but he was in The Saint as a, uh, you know, and he's been in like Bat- uh, Batman movies and he's been a Russian. Generally, they, he's like a go-to Russian bad guy. He's a Russian character actor. Yeah. And then uh, Lily Sobieski, who was huge, I, I would say, in the 90s and had a huge promising career. She looks kind of like a cross between uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Helen Hunt. Yep. That's exactly what she looks like, actually. <laughs> and I feel like her career kind of exploded after this a little bit. And then she retired from acting in 2012. Oh, that's why I haven't seen her in things. Yes, but okay. there's also other reasons, which we'll get into as, uh, later as well. <gasps> oh, good. I'm always happy to hear fun facts. But sometimes that's just, it's not-, that's not so much a fact as, you know, just like my opinion, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then, of course, the wonderful, one of our most important gays, Alan Cumming, as the hotel desk
0: clerk. Who's delightful in this movie for the brief moments? that He's, he's always delightful. It. Yeah, that's true. You have a truly eye of this. Hey, I don't judge. Don't judge me.
1: I judge not. So there's one important question I think we need to get into before we can actually talk about the movie proper, which is, is this an actually finished movie?
0: Yeah, because uh, I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I pulled
1: together some anecdotes. Okay. Right? So through Warner Brothers, uh, even though Warner Brothers insisted that Kubrick had turned in his final cut before his death, the film was still in the final stages of post-production, which was therefore completed by the studio in collaboration with Kubrick's estate, not Kubrick himself. Kubrick collaborator Michael Hare said there was looping to be done and the music wasn't finished. Lots of small technical fixes in color and sound. Would I show work that I wasn't that wasn't finished? I don't know. He had to show it to Tom and Nicole because they had to sign nudity releases, and uh, to Terry Semel and Bob Daly of Warner Brothers. But he hated it that he had to, okay. and I could hear it in his voice that he hated it. Mm. And, and, and continuing that theme, Garrett Brown, the steady cam inventor, of course, who got his career off the ground with the Shining, mm-hmm. or probably before, but he invented it for the Shining, I believe. Um, and whatever anecdote and, and actual facts of that would could be found in that episode. Cause I don't recall the exact details of that, but he said, I think eyes wide shut was snatched up by the studio when Stanley died. And they just grabbed the highest number avid edit and ran off of it as it was as the movie, but it was three months before the movie was due to be released. I don't think there's a chance that was the movie he had in mind or the music track and a lot of other things. It's a great shame because you know it's out there, but it doesn't feel to me as it's really his film. I kind of agree with that to a certain extent. I yeah. I think maybe the cut might be his, but if the music wasn't done, that's a huge part of any film. When well, it's a huge part of a Kubrick film too. Yeah, you they're always almost always the music is something to write home about. You know, it's always dis- distinctive, I would say that. I feel like that's probably more close to the truth. You know what I mean? I, yeah. So although Jan Harlan, which is Kubrick's brother-in-law reported that Kubrick was very happy with the film and considered it to be his quote unquote, greatest contribution to the art of cinema. He didn't say that. So, <laughs> it's, it's hearsay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So I think the family just wants everyone to be consuming the film, you know, and, and cause there's no other way, right? kubrick has gone. Nothing they can do just enjoy it for what it is and don't put any like this isn't the film right they want people to see it kubrick would have wanted people to see it regardless i think although he was a legendary perfectionist so mayhaps not i don't know
0: well and that's that's what i think of when i think about kubrick you know like saying that his movie took 400 days to make is not shocking to me when talking about him in any conversation about a movie that he's directed not at all and i feel like Given his druthers, he could take the same amount of time to do his post-production work to make it the movie that he wants exactly, right? Perfectionist, for sure. And I feel like the movie itself, while it feels sometimes like a Kubrick movie, oftentimes does not. Yeah, You know, does that make sense?
1: It does. And every other Kubrick film feels like a... Kubrick film. Exactly. <laughs> through and through.
0: No matter how different they are, you know, in like their, their disparate qualities or whatnot. So, sometimes this movie doesn't feel like a Kubrick movie. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he can't grow and change as a director or maybe he was trying something new or whatnot. I, we, we, we can't know. You know what I mean? But like finished product wise, I have to be in the camp that this movie was not done by the time that he had died. I'm kind
1: of in both because I noticed the way it was filmed and he was there for the way it was filmed, yes. right? He is a photographer first and foremost, and his films always have an aesthetic. And this film's aesthetic was markedly different from others. So he was trying to do something new.
0: Well, and, and, and I get that too. And and also, I mean, I think some, maybe some of the choices that they made about like, um, you know, doing some digital altering of like sex scenes and things like that. I don't feel like Kubrick would have done that. What's well, interesting. You know?
1: Cause it's like Kubrick's, you know, I don't want to say elderly at this point, But I mean, he'd been making films since like the 50s, right? Essentially like Spartacus, right? And so when you get to these other movies, and you see the aesthetic, and it's really, really distinctive. And it feels timeless, in a way, from the way things are shot. Like the steady cam and the symmetry and all of his shots across 2001 and Barry Lyndon and and everything else. They're just like masterpieces visually versus when you look at this one, everything's kind of asymmetric for the most part. Yeah. There's obvious, uh, things that aren't. There's a lot of like not straight on camera work. There's a lot of things that should have been steady cam that weren't in my opinion. Um, there's things that, that, you know, there's things all over the place that kind of made it feel like a seventies movie. That was made in the 90s, the way it was shot. And I almost feel like he was trying to modernize, but his mind was still back, you know, post heyday of his career in the 70s, trying to modernize to that style of filmmaking, you know, versus actually doing something new or modern, you know, in the 90s. And that's a really good point. But this is all just me guessing by the look of it.
0: Well, and, and then the anything I said about whether it's finished or not is just my opinion. I mean, obviously we have these quotes and things like that to go on, and we the, all we have really is things that we either we know about him as a director or our interpretation or experience in the movies that we've seen of his, right? And so, I mean, I really yeah. I like this movie, you know, but um, sometimes to me it just doesn't feel Kubricky, and I, I feel like I feel like some people maybe a lot of people
1: for better or worse. Yeah.
0: Had their hands in it. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm certainly, and you know, that's, that's a whole conversation separate. And I'm sure that's been beat to death over the years. I'm sure. But I've never really cared enough or even seen the film until recently Mm -hmm. to actually read any commentary on it. So apologies if we're beating a, a dead horse to even more chunky salsa. Yeah. Listeners, if this is something that you've delved into at all, but Well, and
0: I, I mean, I never looked into it either. I mean, these are, these are literally just my opinions and I've seen this movie a good handful of times.
1: Okay. And this is all based on my first, but that said, maybe we could get into the actual production Yes. a little bit, right? Yes, I would like to talk about that. So Kubrick's perfectionism obviously led to the script pages being rewritten on the set with most scenes requiring numerous takes. That's kind of given if you know Kubrick, right? That's not surprising at all. No. The shoot went on for much longer than expected. Like we've said, uh, the actress, Vanessa Shaw, you know, who played Domino was basically on a streetwalking scene and then, uh, well, literally, and then a, uh, a scene just with her and Tom Cruise, maybe for like five minutes total in the movie. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, she was initially contracted for two weeks, but ended up working for two months.
0: Also not shocking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Actor Alan Cumming, who appears in one scene as the hotel clerk auditioned six times before the filming process and came on a full year into the production His one scene took a full week to film. (laughs) Thousands of takes.
0: My God.
1: But as a side note, uh, Alan actually said that the entire experience actually reinvigorated his passion for acting because of the level of detail required. Getting into a legitimate reason for each of the thousands of takes every time. Uh, that Kubrick would, would say it. So he would say, another take, and I want this. I want your head to move this tightly, slightly, or the, and there's just a reason why, and blah, 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 blah. And so he would get it exactly the way he wanted to, but Alan Cumming was completely into it, apparently. Yeah.
0: I wonder if Alan Cumming is a stage actor. He must well, – I know he is. He yeah. acts on the stage, and so, I mean – There's a difference, I think, sometimes between like actors who are given some sort of like freedom to do their performances, how they want to do it Mm nightly, And people come into an environment of film where it's quickly and lots of takes all at one time or for days or weeks or whatever. And sometimes they can't get into that. But if he's a good sport and says it reinvigorated his passion for acting, I mean, I would assume that a lot of actors would want to work with Kubrick. Right. Despite the amount. Oh, sure
1: like yeah he waited see, a year but... to get into this and had to move things aside just for that one scene because he wanted to work with Kubrick i love it yeah so, obviously, given Kubrick's fear of flying, which has taken place before like The Shining, mm-hmm. uh, the entire film was shot in England. Uh, so, the soundstage uh, works were completed at London's Pinewood Studios, which included a detailed recreation of Greenwich Village. And uh, Kubrick's perfection and went so far as sending workmen to Manhattan to measure street widths and note newspaper vending machine locations and everything. <laughs> Just so they could well, – there's a lot of money there, too, right? So, not only like the extended – You know, the extended contracts for Nicole Kidman, the extended shoots at 400 days or 15 months, uh, recreating like a whole street or neighborhood of New York in Pinewood Studios, all kinds of stuff contributed to that $65 million budget. That's insane to me. It's a good set, too. I
0: mean, it looks... It looks like
1: Greenwich Village to me. It, Yeah. I thought they shot on location. Yeah. The Guinness World Records recognized Eyes Wide Shut as the longest constant movie shoot that ran for over 15 months, a period that included an unbroken shot of 46 weeks. Oh, my God. <laughs> That'll probably never be beat either. That'll be the world record forever. Can you imagine working on a shoot for 46 weeks?
0: No. <laughs> I'm surprised I've kept my job for this long, honestly. <laughs> oh. But yeah, no, and I think a lot of what we just talked about is evident in the movie, right? We, we know that he's a perfectionist. We talked about that a lot when we talked about The Shining, you know, but I, I think that The Shining is also an excellent movie. I don't think that Kubrick makes bad movies, period, you know? I want to go back
1: to some of these movies. Eyes Wide Shut, Top of the Pile, maybe uh, The Shining would be a great other example, maybe even 2001, although okay. that might be prohib- prohibitive, but I'd love to, for people to go back to those original reels and pick the first through five takes of all of the 100,000 takes of these. And I want them to recut both movies so we can see them. What's the difference between one through five take and the perfected take? You know what I mean? And and I don't know if they're the last take. I, I don't know if he actually went back and watched a thousand diff- different takes while editing this film. Or if he only printed the last ones that he was happy with, I think that might be it. But yeah, I would have loved to see, if, especially if something's shot digitally today. Like you know, when you have a, a perfectionist director like this, is it OCD or is there a difference? It might be a really educational experience.
0: I mean, I would love to see some of that too. I, I feel like what you said prior to that is probably more accurate. That he he. Is happier with the last takes, he finally stops making them do other takes because he can see it right then. He's like, okay, this is what we got. This is what we were working toward. But from an acting standpoint, I would like to see what he didn't like. You know what I mean? I would love to see all that stuff. So you're yeah. right. That'd be that'd be very interesting. Yeah. I wonder if his widow has all that stuff. How about just select like, scenes like Jack yeah. Nicholson
1: and Shelly Duvall going up the staircase? Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at that first take. Or second take versus, you know, the
0: thousandth. It would be very interesting. I would like to see some of that stuff. I don't think it'll ever happen, but I mean,
1: and which one we think is the original and which one we think is better? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love that. I Absolutely fucking love it. I'm about to die and go to heaven just thinking about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we should just write a write a letter. Be like, we are going to take an extended vacation, and we want to lock ourselves into a room with film, and we just want to look at it. Let me make my way through the hedge maze. (laughs) of bush. (laughs) On film, film only.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I can't edit film on Avid like that. Like that's old school. You know, I can edit film digitally. (laughs) You could learn. You're a smart guy. Probably fucking manually cutting back then. Still,
0: we'll (laughs) spend that we'll spend those two weeks of vacation together. You locked up in the room doing all the cuts and everything, and me drinking poolside, waiting for you to show me the cut and then go back and do the next scene. Oh, fuck you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> speaking of fuck you uh that music that we were talking about earlier <laughs> by jocelyn pook i don't know if she was handpicked you know if she was picked by you know kubrick or if she was picked later uh-huh. but she's only done like two or three other films so i'm guessing she was picked by kubrick I but said. the music was not completed until after his death i don't even know if it was started until after his death and to me it's dissonant unfinished and mismatched to the film I did not like it. Parts of it sounded kind of John Carpentry, which I kind of liked, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was like not musically edited well, in my opinion. I I, I did not appreciate I, I actively music shouldn't take you out to begin with. Sometimes I like it to take me out, thinking of how how beautiful or resonant it is. But for this it actually jarred me several times that i do not like i do not like this
0: music in this movie you do not like it sam i am no uh i don't know i mean because a lot of times the mu- the music of a cubic film is selected elsewhere right he does that a lot you know what i mean oh yeah several so of the
1: biggies from you know from that time period would do that um scorsese does that yes a lot
0: uh, can you think of an example in the movie that the music took you out of? Cause I'm just curious as to which Oh God, parts. every time the fucking piano would go,
1: dun, 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 uh, you know, just dun. constantly just like
0: for no reason, he's
1: just like staring at a newspaper or walking down the street and it would just be like, no.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure that we're going to talk a little bit about like the way this movie makes people feel or the way the movie is presenting itself in general. Right. And it's kind of, kind of dreamlike, you know, and purposefully, that was not dreamlike. No, but I, I think they're also trying very hard in certain places to make this movie suspenseful or mysterious, right? And I think that that kind of music would be their attempt to do that. If they wanted to go and
1: look at something that they should have done, then they should have looked at David Fincher's The Game and how music was used in that film. Because the tone is fairly similar in certain aspects. Yeah. If you think about it.
0: I'm I, Yeah, it's... it's one man on a night-long escapade, you know what I mean? Essentially, right?
1: Thinking like he's being followed. Exactly. Like yeah. he got in too deep into something and intrigue and romance and blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
0: So the music I liked the most in this movie, though, was during the orgy. Or at least like the, yeah, the, the ritual scene.
1: Notably because it was actually played diegetically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I liked it. So For the most part. I mean... Some I- of it felt a little too Enya-y to me, but, <laughs> you know... <laughs> (laughs) Or Enigma or something. I was just like, oh God, if they start playing Sadness, I'm (laughs) going to. I'm just (laughs) 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 (laughs)
0: going (laughs) to. Please cut that music in right here. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that song, though. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. So that music really creates a really, to me, a very singular scary moment in this movie. Like, I know a lot of people don't find this movie to be mysterious or suspenseful or remotely horrific. You know what I mean? I don't know how I, I feel like as a director, he creates an almost consistent, like feeling of mystery and
1: intrigue here. Yes. Come on.
0: And I mean, the payoff may not be what you want, but he is made a a mysterious erotic thriller to me and that orgy scene at least the very beginning of it where they're doing the ritual where the master of ceremonies is like sort of like initiating the women in that circle and Tom Cruise shows up he doesn't know what's going on everyone's in masks people are looking at him through masks right it's fucking creepy to me and terrifying the first time i watched this in the theater i was on the edge of my seat i was like what is going on and i was just horrified at everything i think the music works for that i think the direction and the filming work for that the acting works for it it's just a really good scary kind of scene to me and i will forever consider this movie to be like at least a thriller the whole sequence is yeah really well done yeah I don't know, I just went off a little tangent. We were talking about music and I ran away with it.
1: No, because the um, the music serves that for the most part.
0: And I agree. I feel like if you had chosen a different track to play, it wouldn't have worked as well. Maybe. Maybe.
1: So, let's get into the themes. Okay. And some inter interpretations. Okay. There's probably piles and piles of, you know, inter interpretations from this film throughout there. But, you know, the, the, some of the things that I'm getting at, I could find. And some of the things that I came up with, I could not find. So here's hoping for the best. But anyway, starting with the one that I thought was interesting that people do bring up is why Christmas? Okay. Right. So the original novel was a turn of the century, like Mardi Gras and Vienna, right? So like a carnival or whatever. And uh, Harper's cr- film critic Lee Siegel believed that the film's recurring motif is the is the Christmas tree because it symbolizes the way that compared with the everyday reality of sex and emotion, our fantasies of gratification are pompous and solemn in the extreme. And for desire is like Christmas. It always promises more than it delivers. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> I don't think it's that deep. No. Personally. But- um, and uh, – The only set in an entire movie... Uh, without any kind of Christmas decoration, because it's in the streets, it's in the homes, it's in every bar or house they go to. There's Christmas stuff. The only set without Christmas was that mansion. And I believe that was to create more contrast and inspire a more menacing or even satanic environment by comparison.
0: Yeah, I would agree. You know, my, I'm racking my brain now trying to remember that orgy scene. And I mean, you're right. There's no like Christmas tree anywhere.
1: Nothing, not in the foyer, not outside, not on the gates, nothing, nowhere it's completely outside of the reality of the rest of the film which is interesting because the entire film does feel kind of dreamlike right but this one place is the, somehow the the real is more real right it's the surreal has become threatening yeah and so i think it's mostly for contrast but also it gives I think a chance for Kubrick to light naturally, kind of like Barry Lyndon. If he was shooting this in period, uh, you know, maybe even at carnival or something in Vienna, if he would made this a period film, he might've done it kind of Barry Lyndon style with a lot of candlelight, a lot and things of candles, like that. Yeah. Versus here, he's able to use like the Chinese lanterns and a lot of those Christmas lights and things to light things more, na- light things more naturally per the scene. And Kubrick loves to do that. Right. And so this gave kind of a chance to do that. So I think it's not only like a framing device, but it's also
0: something that Kubrick can play with. And, uh, you know, and I agree with that. I I don't I feel like Christmas is I think that's probably the only reason that they said it at that particular period of time, because it's not mentioned very often. It's mentioned like when they're talking to their daughter or when they're going to one specific party. It's not mentioned, but it's. It's splashed over almost every scene. But it's in everywhere. Only yeah. for like decoration and probably lighting purposes. It's a Christmas and, movie. And that's, that's what I say we're watching. It's like, Look for for a Christmas, Christmas, Christmas Bush. movie. <laughs> Christmas boosh. All I want for Christmas is you to put your pants on. <laughs> <laughs> Did you clock that uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise's characters have both a Christmas tree and a menorah in their house? No. Yeah, they have a menorah right in front of a, a mirror as she's walking through the apartment. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: So here's my theory. Okay. And this might actually be more of a theory on the original work or just as much as the original work as it is on this. Right. And I'm talking about like a trauma novella. Trauma novella. Right. So the background about the story is that it's an intimate, it's about an intimate uh, romantic relationships, trust, lifelong partnerships, you know, that's offered by monogamy, you know, all of that stuff, right. It's centered on a trusting, romantic, traditionally monogamistic relationship. Okay. Right. And kind of like that seven year itch. They've been, they say they've been married for eight or nine years. But it's kind of like, I feel like if they had said seven, people would have instantly like, you know. Right. You have to skirt around that. Right. So it's like they're kind of losing interest to in each other. And it's kind of interesting. When we first start the film, there's that first seduction at the party for both Alice and Bill. And it works as a framing device. Alice wants Bill to be jealous of that. Right. She's flirting with that guy. And she's a lot more receptive of it than he is, essentially. She wants to feel needed, wanted, sought after. Meanwhile, he... Wants to feel in charge and secure based on his ego versus his more of like his heart, right? And feels emasculated by Alice's revelations. And so that's essentially kind of the engine behind both of them. Her dreams, her aspirations for being wanted and sought after and everything else. She has this literal dream where she's fucking all kinds of men, not just her naval officer, while he watches and she's laughing. It's true. You thought you could have this, you know what I mean? Uh, So that's all just kind of stuff in there. That's not really my theory, but my theory is that this is kind of a loose adaption of A Christmas Carol. Well, okay. You know, because it's kind of like that one night, that surrealistic night that was it a dream, wasn't it? Where you kind of have to deal with your past, your present, and possible futures. Right. And so he's dealing with his past with Marion and his present with Alice and his future or possible futures with Domino, which I think is aptly named Mandy. And of course, even the hotel desk clerk, these are all possible futures. Right possible things that kind of come into his path that are by th- through fate are kind of taken away from his path as possible options of moving forward through the HIV results for Domino, not being there with Mandy actually dying after sticking up for him and um, the hotel desk cleric ceaselessly, ceaselessly flirting with him Yes, and him was, kind of into it a little bit. It seems like it. Right. And so it just, it seems very reminiscent of that. Uh, I wonder if that original author kind of wanted to make his own like erotic you know, tale based off of like taking stock of your life, you know, realizing what you have by looking at the past, present and possible future and then learning something from it as a morality tale.
0: I think that's incredibly interesting and, and fascinating because I never would have thought about that ever. You know what I mean? It's also a Christmas movie. I can't, I can't speak for the original author because he didn't set his novel or novella around that time. That's right. But it's still, I feel like, Kubrick noticed that and brought it
1: more into focus by his choice there.
0: Yeah, I think that I think if this were what he really wanted to do, Kubrick, I mean, I think that would be all his idea. And I would never put anything past him like this. I think he would totally have done something like that. That's super, super interesting. I like that. I have always thought about this movie to be more about um, temptation than about like looking at your own life or whatever. I never really thought about the consequences of Tom Cruise's character watching this movie, at least for the first couple of times that I watched it. I really just felt that they, as a couple had just like grown, grown stale. And I always just saw this movie as like Tom Cruise being mad that his wife like said something to him and he went off and he was like, well, you know what? You're going to just think about it. Well, I'm going to actually do it sort of thing and every every instance of everything that he gets into in this movie is sexual in some kind of way yeah he's trying he's literally on a on a quest to kind of put back together the pieces
1: of his broken ego
0: right i don't know i, I kind of like yours better i i hopefully i wish i hope that's true because that's super super fucking interesting i think on the surface
1: it's about temptation for real i i, I think that's something that a lot of people should take away because it's there it's written into it it's all over the screen but i don't think it's as simple as that because at every point where he could do something that is taken away from him that opportunity through some sort of fate or happenstance
0: that's true although sometimes it's just because he didn't do it you know i mean like he very he could have easily slept with marion right or done something with her. In fact, well, he, he went back and tried to do it he, later on. But someone else answered the phone. And someone showed up. And someone know? showed up. And like and, the HIV results and like the. All and of he of could have happened. hung up the phone and slept with Domino, obviously, right? But, and he
1: wanted to, he could have done something with Sobieski's character, you know? Mm-hmm. But you know, he has on his way somewhere else. Mostly out of all those people, I just want him to have sex with Alan Cumming. I think that's a much better
0: movie and more accurate. Than
1: <laughs> it's just like a series of near misses, you know, it's, it's yeah. almost like they're presenting uh, to him as an array of temptation only to serve one goal, which is to bring us back to zero. Right. Which is essentially, uh, you know, some, for some critics beating a dead horse, but I don't think it is, no. which is, you know, the, the ending device of, you know, the mask. Yeah. Does it matter? Which is no. None of it happened. Nothing happened. Essentially, There's, we're talking about dreams and near misses here on either part of Alice and Bill. And you know, when forced to ask the question, who left the mask there? Was it another threat? You know, or was it actually her finding it? And the the truth is, it doesn't matter. Right. The end result is still the same. Right.
0: It doesn't matter who put it on there. He told his wife everything, and his conscience is kind of clear anyway because he. I mean, honestly, he didn't consummate any of his feelings. He just attempted to or whatever. And I don't know what that says. I mean, that sounds really like complacent or something like that. It's not even the right word. But I mean, like she's crying when he's telling her what he did.
1: Yeah. And they obviously love each other and respect each other and have a family and they're important to each other. But they're kind of bored. Yeah. You know, and they want to feel she wants to feel desired and he wants to feel secure. You know, uh, based on those monologues at the beginning of the film, that set up every all the conflict for the rest. And you know, I I feel like if if the film's trying to say something, it's that it's yes, you know, even if you're in a perfect relationship, you're always going to want more, you know, or you're going to familiarity breeds contempt and you get bored. And so, the act of cheating or wanting to explore more of your sexuality or what have you is kind of like the needing of a like a quickening. You know, it's like when you're in the bathtub too long. Mm. You know, and you're not sure how hot the water it is until you wiggle your toe and all of a sudden you feel that warmth again. You know, something has to happen. And the end note, the exclamation point is that they need to fuck.
0: You just said something that I mean, I don't know why it popped into my head, but you think it's odd that you said that uh Nicole Alice wants to feel desired and Bill wants to feel secure. Yeah. Right? When traditionally that would be swapped and a, a, a traditional male-female relationship. I think most people, most people, when you talk about, and it's maybe in like older literature too, like women want security in a relationship and a man wants to have like the admiration of women.
1: Uh, Yes and no. I think it works both ways. I feel like the woman in this situation wants to be desired, you know, in a way that men typically don't care about as much. I would say as far as sexually, like to them, that's less important as them feeling the desire, but having something I was just reading an article. I don't want to go on a huge tangent, but it was like the worst top 10 worst professions to marry. If you don't want a divorce and like doctors, surgeons, like they're all on the top of the list because they're basically feel like gods among men, their ego, everything's in its perfect category. They come home after saving lives. And then when they don't have the dishes done or take the trash out, it's a huge contrast and juxtaposition to how they feel outside of the home. Yeah. Right. And so when he's feeling like all of his ducks are in a row and Hey, this huge fucking duck, his wife is out of row yeah. that shakes up
0: his whole fucking
1: world and his self-image. And it all makes very good sense.
0: It does. And I'm happy. I'm happy that we're having these conversations about this movie because I know that you had not seen it before and a lot of people that I know don't care for the movie. You know what I mean? And so I was like, what is this episode going to be like or whatever? But I'm happy because I feel like we've had lots of discussions about this movie. And I'm super happy about it because I, spoiler alert, love this movie.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of those, like you could say, it's a mile wide, but also like 10 miles deep versus yeah. really something really shallow. And I feel like this is actually the, the breadth of this film is actually fairly narrow, but it's about 10 miles deep.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. You know what I
1: mean? Completely. Do you
0: have some fun facts for me? Oh, my God. Do I? Oh, there's pictures. (laughs) (laughs) A visual aid with the fun facts. Sorry, listeners. These are just for me.
1: So for my first one, Kubrick considered casting Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger as (gasps) Bill and Alice. Oh, uh, I can see that. Yeah.
0: That would have been a totally different movie, though.
1: But Tom Cruise cut in line, essentially, because he was in England because Nicole Kidman was filming um, one of her movies at the time and was over there anyway and so he was like hey I'll just look this guy up and so they had a meeting and he floated the idea and there there you go and there it was and they lived there
0: for so long that their children started having accents <laughs> <laughs> I like Alec I like Baldwin and Kim Basinger though I mean like Kim Basinger especially I think she would have done some good things with that role around that time they started to erupt yeah though. they were not they didn't last very long after although, <laughs> although you could
1: say the same thing for for, for the
0: Cruise Kidmans yeah they yeah. didn't last very long after this either
1: no Secondly, in 2019, it was revealed that Kate Blanchett had provided the voice of the mysterious masked woman at the orgy party because actress Abigail Good could not do a convincing American accent. And Cruz and Kidman ended up suggesting that, uh, suggesting Blanchett for the dubbing, which occurred after Kubrick's death.
0: I actually knew this one. So I
1: didn't realize that. It's like if it's supposed to be Mandy, that actress was already naked already in the movie. Why wasn't she there for that? Kate Blanchett? No, Mandy. That she's playing Mandy's character, right? Just her voice. Yeah, but even the actress that was there on the day, that's not the same actress's name as the one that played Mandy.
0: Oh, it's not? No. Oh, my God. So they just have some random naked woman in a mask? Uh, Apparently it wasn't important to have those... In Kate Blanchett's voice.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which was done after Kubrick's death, so he didn't choose that either.
0: (laughs) But still, I mean, like, even thinking about it, because I was listening the last time we watched it, it does sound like Kate Blanchett a little bit. When she's standing up at that balcony and they have that huge zoom up to her and she's from like her, stop or whatever from her Elizabethan era <laughs> yeah and she sounds just like queen elizabeth the first yeah stop don't make him take his clothes off
1: so according to the screenplay published to tie in with the film the girl at the costume store whispers you'll need an ermine lighting for your cloak to dr harford
0: what the fuck does that
1: mean i don't know okay I mean, she's been there is what it's trying to say. I mean, she's oh, one okay. of the she's one of the oh, the naked
0: yeah. hosts. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Because I'm still thinking about I don't know what Ermine is. Yeah, I'm just I'm not quite gay enough. I'm a it. terrible, terrible gay man.
1: <laughs> so speaking of Lili w s uh, which was of course that daughter. Uh, so she collects locks of hair from major stars appearing with her in films. Tom Cruise refused to participate.
0: Uh, good. I'd be like, no,
1: don't touch my fucking hair. why I think her career was
0: (laughs) (laughs) short-lived. I told you that would come back. Because she's a freak? Because she's collecting locks. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I know for a fact I'm not going to be a star very long. I get all the locks of hair I can. What a weirdo.
1: What if she did it with her Joan of Arc sword? Oh, Lord. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. All right, so when Alan Cumming finally met Kubrick, Kubrick angrily noted that Cumming wasn't American. He's Scottish. And Kubrick said, You were American in the audition tapes! And Alan responded, Well, that's because I'm an actor, Stanley. <laughs> and because he kind of immediately stood up to him, um, they got along after that. But um, That's funny. He also that. noted, this is like a three-pronged fun fact, he also noted that his gaitar was fully tweaked for his scene with Tom Cruise, but it didn't go off.
0: <laughs> what? Please.
1: <laughs> Uh, He also wants everyone to know that he's still the only actor who can say they've made back-to-back movies with both Stanley Kubrick and the Spice Girls. Oh my god, that's true. He is not Spice World. He was like the manager
0: or something for Spice World. Oh my god, I love Spice World. We'll have to do that on Patreon sometime. Alan Cumming is someone's national treasure. And I wish we could claim him. But he's really fun to see. I was glad to see him in this movie. And he's lying. His gaydar totally went off in that scene with Tom Cruise. Because, come on
1: like he has to act like he's like amused by the whole thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know so i don't know but he was doing that for a week so i'm sure they fact. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i got a true crime fun fact
0: oh my god yay
1: so nearly two decades after the film was released it received renewed attention and examination due to its perceived similarities to the jeffrey epstein sex trafficking case yes in a curious twist the name of the real life new york post reporter credited for the article in the film about the beauty queen who overdosed in ziegler's apartment uh larry salona would later end up as the author of the actual new york post article about epstein accomplish uh Ghislaine Maxwell's arrest on sex trafficking charges in 2020. What? Yeah.
0: Oh my God, that's mind blowing. Life
1: imitates art, imitates life, imitates <laughs> art.
0: Huh? <laughs> whenever say so after jeff jeffrey epstein was arrested and eventually committed suicide or whatever fucking conspiracy theory you believe in right and then how do you say her name i always say it wrong it's just Lane, i don't know just just, i mean it comes out like massachusetts to me apparently (laughs) i can't say things like that I, i mean the first thing i thought of when that whole thing was happening i was like how much of their fucking sex parties were like eyes wide shut like literally that's what I thought of.
1: Yeah. With a bunch of Lili Zabieskis running around, apparently
0: cutting locks of hair with swords <laughs> and things <laughs> like that. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, obviously what they did was awful. And I feel like at least in this movie, these are consenting adults doing things. You know what I mean? Like well, he had this- his own sex Island. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Crazy. And like he built a sex mansion and shit like that. I don't know, but <laughs> this is crazy. What they did was even crazier, but I love this fun fact. Yeah, That's neat. And for my final one. Okay.
1: So some interiors of the orgy, if not most of them, were filmed at High Clear Castle, which of course is the castle from Downton Abbey. Yes. So <laughs> there's actually a picture here of that main area where they all the family would sit together in front of the fireplace uh-huh. and like have exposition and everything. And then like a shot for shot, you see the orgy happening in that room. And I'm like, oh my god, no wonder Dame Maggie Smith always seems so uncomfortable in there. <laughs>
0: so I was just looking at the pictures up close. <laughs> I also love Downton Abbey, so no wonder. I'm never going to be able to watch it the same way again. I know. I'd be like, why aren't... Well, they're all family. I can't say why. They're fucking... And there is fucking in that show. Just not quite the same. Maggie Smith,
1: well, thank God you've arrived through that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the strawberry
1: <Shabria> of bushes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to arrive. That's fucking hilarious. All right. Those are really fun facts. I like it. But we have some questions to ask about Eyes Wide Shut, like we do about every movie that we derp dive into here on the Film Flamers. (laughs) This was not a derp dive. This was a a legitimate deep dive. Like every movie that we deep dive into here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, is Eyes Wide Shut a horror movie?
1: Uh, There's adjacency, obviously. I think there's a lot of adjacency here. Just like there would be for the game or any thriller, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, There's definitely some moments of
0: implied horror, for sure. I, I feel like this movie is super adjacent. Um, and sometimes even not. Like I said, I mean, like there, there are some moments in this movie where I think that he was really, really trying to create something scary, something frightening, something completely unsettling. And having this like dreamlike quality about the movie also lends itself to that. Whether or not you find it to be thrilling or mysterious in any way, like it is certainly surreal. Yeah. And I feel like that, that lends itself to the horror genre, or at least the horror is adjacent genres definitely were you scared while watching eyes Wide shut a little nervous you know yeah. during especially
1: during that whole scene where there's all that discovery and you're just kind of drop shipped in to essentially that menagerie of cult yeah you know and there's all these masks that are designed to make you feel kind of off-putting there, there are a lot of them were not happy masks
0: no you know? they were frightening looking masks and I'm i mean, I'm not scared of things like that typically but in a situation where you just have no idea what's going on you kind of like put yourself in our main character shoes for a minute and like it's its kind of scary to be in a situation like that like he he wants this he wants to be there because he he feels maybe like something will come of it you know in a sexual way but he quickly learns that I mean like his life could be in danger and things like that and having someone Someone tell you in a scary fucking mask and a red cloak sitting in some throne to take your clothes off i mean like it's frightening you yeah
1: know? and i like that they leave it unexplained a lot yes. of it you don't know who else was in there and they said like the, the the name the list of names of people that in there would make you just shit yourself basically right. you know like uh, and, and being surrounded by you know 500 to 1,000 i don't know people in black you know cloaks with masks staring at you being in that kind of fishbowl Mm-hmm. You know, constantly being told right after that your life is in fucking danger and you better leave. Yeah, and not having to chance to d- to do so. You I, know,
0: I think out of out of. I mean, I, I like this movie and I think a lot of the scenes are very effective. I think they're kind of like standalone scenes a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like it's almost an anthology of moments, maybe. Oh sure, but vignettes. Yeah, and so, but that that orgy scene from the minute that those two people up on the staircase turn and look directly at him becomes something more than just some random fucking religiously like culty orgy.
1: Yeah. The one thing that I would have liked is for them not to nod because they nod and that kind of eases the tension and gives the audience kind of a breath. And I don't think it needs a breath there. I think they really should double down on that. If they, they're just like slowly turning their heads at you, you don't know who they are, but they've noticed you, they have singled you out from everyone in that room
0: even though you yourself are wearing a mask, it adds to that intrigue. I know because the nodding just implies familiarity. Yeah. And there's no way in the world that you would know that someone is who they are. If they're wearing a cloak and a mask, can't just tell from stature and stance, you know, unless you know someone so fucking well, you know what I mean? Like I know you pretty fucking well, but if you were in, if you walked into a crowd that I was already in in a mask and a cloak, I would probably not know that it's you. You know what yeah. I mean? So I, I agree. Don't do the nod, but the slow look, Is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Always. So, out of five stars, what would you rate Eyes Wide Shut? I give it a three star. Okay. I think there's a lot of meaning here.
1: I I think it's kind of the story here is expertly crafted. I really do. But um, from my high expectations, aesthetically, from Kubrick, it didn't meet them. And I feel like the cut was done as kind of a rough final. Yeah. To get the sign off for the nudes, essentially, right? This is pre music and everything else, which has to be edited to a film, and edited with it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, I think this is even a little long and slower pace than even Kubrick would have wanted or imagined, because the functional cut that he made was for that sign off, not for for the audience, essentially. Yes. Yeah. You know. And of course, they just took it because they weren't going to fuck with Kubrick's cut right after he died, and they wouldn't wouldn't want that as a headline. Nope. Essentially, so what I'm saying is, you know, this is fairly, uh, you know, masturbatory in a way. This the, but except that I don't think it was. I don't think it was intentionally masturbatory on Kubrick's part, because this movie is all uh, moves kind of glacially slow in a way that I don't think it would have been if it had done a few more surgical cuts. You know, and um, it's that's a problem that's throughout the entire length of the movie, and I feel feel like it would have been trimmed in some key areas. Even by Kubrick himself, or even if he hadn't, you know, it should have been. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the problem for me is that uh, very often I was kind of starting to get bored, even with all of this mountain of meaning and value and storytelling and tone, you know, was, that is such an achievement. It's the overall movie as a whole doesn't really surpass the sum of its parts because of its embellishment of of non-editing.
0: And I get that completely. I mean, and I agree with you for, for certain aspects of that review. I give this movie four out of five stars. I think that it's, Fantastic, I'm not saying it's perfect, obviously. Yeah. Otherwise it'd be a five star. Yeah. It's a, it's a very slow movie, you know? I mean, like every time that I watch it, I'm like, God, like you could pick up the pace a little bit. Like we could, we could get it, you know, pacing is a huge problem in this movie. Yes, for sure. But I think that the parts that we are given, right. I think that the, the, the movie itself is just excellent from an acting standpoint. I think from, from a meaning standpoint, I think that you can watch this movie many, many times and get different things out of it you know what i mean i feel like i feel like there's a lot undiscovered in this movie i don't think that i've discovered everything in this movie and that can be true of every cubic film right it just reminds me of that Mark Twain quote. You know, it's like, I would have written you a
1: shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Yeah, that's true. You know, he didn't have the time to finish this and, re- and give us a shorter film.
0: I mean, this is my second favorite cubic movie and it will probably it will, will always be because he's not going to make any more. Yeah. you know what I mean? Unless I change my mind about other ones. But I really think that Eyes Wide Shut is a, a fantastic movie and I wish that more people liked it. I know we looked at like the audience score of Rotten Tomatoes and it's okay. But anytime I talk to people or bring it up, it's usually the. Same thing. That movie's boring, and it doesn't have a payoff. I think as the most meaningful takeaway
1: of all yeah. of his movies, there's not much takeaway from *Shining* or even 2001 A Space Odyssey*. Yeah. You know, for for everyday mo- modern life, like there is in this one.
0: I mean, it's no full metal jacket. So finally, who's the hottest guy in *Eyes Wide Shut*? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I don't want
1: to say Tom Cruise <laughs> I don't either but I am like that's another thing like when he was propositioned for all this stuff for like his scenes he is just not a sexual person like it's so awkward with him I know
0: I mean I find him attractive he has
1: no chemistry with anyone no wonder he's always like a standalone action hero with no love interest and you know what I mean like
0: I mean early Tom Cruise movies he's kind of foxy I mean like Risky Business and stuff like that you know what I mean and I still think he's really attractive. I would pick Tom Cruise, I guess. Yeah, just he was because. more attractive
1: when he had really fucked up teeth. Yeah. See <laughs> legend
0: it's uh it's so fun to watch him in this movie though because you kind of see how short he is you always hear like tom cruise is a real short guy but this movie like he is standing right next to people much taller than him throughout most sometimes of it. though there's yeah. a
1: lot of notes on the. he was standing next to like the, i think the guy the nick nightingale or something is like six foot two and he's like five foot seven and they look even height mm-hmm. because they have him on a fucking box
0: maybe it's the women he's standing next to a lot of women who look a lot taller than him in this movie and maybe that means something too. god we can't i can't do this anymore <laughs> napoleon complex yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Tom Cruise for me I guess only because like there's not I don't know I mean like we this movie has a lot of naked women in it and not a lot of naked men like you said it's male gaze the movie you know Yeah. and so there's not a lot of choices to, to pick from but I mean Tom Cruise is an attractive man and I think I picked him for no I didn't pick him for the vampire that was Brad Pitt for sure yeah I don't know either way I can't say that's fine <laughs> sometimes there's just not an answer
1: Alan Cumming. I'll vote for my own. There you go. (laughs) We're going to keep it in house. Shout out to the pasty white nerds.
0: (laughs) No. (laughs) I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Eyes Wide Shut. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation. Do you think it's horror? Do you think it's horror adjacent? You can tell us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram.
1: You can email us at TiredQueens at FilmFlamers.com or... Call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Climb
0: your way through our bush. Uh, Fidelio. That's <laughs> my password. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we have more content coming out for you next week. We are going to be doing more Nicole Kidman, and this time, a little bit more horrific. And we're talking about The Others. And if somehow we've picked another movie
1: that is very difficult to get, even though we assumed it was available on streaming, you're pretty much shit out of luck. That's so right. hope for the best and, uh, I don't know, rely on your memory or the Blu-ray.
0: My God, how is this possible? I thought yeah, The Others was just so popular. Yeah. So... If you can't get enough of the Film Flamers, and we know you can't, head over to patreon.com slash the Film to find all of our bonus content. You can help us pick another Nicole Kidman movie to talk about over there. You can start being a member of that family for as low as $2. That's right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to uh, head off and put on our cloaks and masks and find some Monday Night Orgy. Hmm, oh. shouldn't be too hard, right? I think the manhole's open. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we'll certainly have some sweet dreams the manhole (laughs) (laughs) that's what I'm going to call our sex group when we make it (laughs) the manhole (laughs) (laughs) they'll be back and just whatever it was